Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. This episode of Writers' Festival Radio is a conversation between Yana Buhlman and Dr. Stephanie Green, a leading pioneer in medically-assisted dying who began her career in the maternity ward and now helps patients who are suffering explore and then fulfill their end-of-life choices. Dr. Green has been forging new paths in the field of medical assistance and dying since 2016. In her landmark memoir, This is Assisted Dying, a doctor's story of empowering patients at the end of life, she contextualizes the myriad personal, professional, and practical issues surrounding assisted dying by bringing readers into the room and sharing the voices of her patients, her colleagues, and her own narrative. Here's Jana Buhlman and her conversation with Dr. Stephanie Green. Hello, my name is Jana Buhlman, and I'm speaking to you today from New Westminster, British Columbia, the traditional and unceded territory of the Kakite, where I learn and unlearn. Outside of my paid work, I find purpose as a patient, caregiver, and assisted death advocate. In 2015, I met a man named Chris, and we commenced a relationship. Chris was in the process of making some significant changes in his life, and that aligned with work I had been doing on myself as a person. In the fall of 2016, Chris was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. One day after his 41st birthday, Chris received an assisted death. We knew each other for less than three years. When I speak of our relationship, I will often say that I believe I met Chris to help him die, to be his caregiver. And when I speak of his assisted death, I feel the value of our story is that Chris did not find peace before he died. In that regard, he left a legacy of complicated grief, a concept I will weave into our discussion today. Now I'd like to give the floor to Stephanie to introduce herself. Thanks, Yana, and hello, everyone. My name is Stephanie Green, and I'm a physician in Victoria, British Columbia. I began my career as a family doctor and spent over 20 years focused on maternity and newborn care. But in 2016, when Canadian laws changed, I pivoted and began work as a maid practitioner. I'm also the co-founder and president of CAMAP, the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers, which is a national nonprofit, now a charitable organization, that is the professional association that supports the diverse community of passionate and compassionate professionals that do the work of assisted dying in Canada, the doctors, the nurses, and the multidisciplinary team surrounding us. I wear many hats throughout my work in assisted dying, but as you mentioned, Yana, I've also recently published a book about my first year providing this care. Thanks, Stephanie. I thought we could start our conversation by having you provide listeners with a definition of MAID. Yeah, sure. The most complete official definition of medical assistance in dying is, is probably that MAID is the legalized, compassionate end-of-life care provided by clinicians who prescribe and or administer lethal medications that will safely and effectively end a person's life in specifically outlined safeguarded circumstances, which must include the explicit request of a competent adult. If that sounds too formal, I'd just say that MAID is when a person who is suffering intolerably and can find no other option of relief asks for help to end their life. And in Canada, if they meet a number of specific eligibility criteria, a doctor or nurse practitioner can assist them to do so. Assisted dying is available, legal, free of charge, 
and has been so in every region of this country since June of 2016. Thanks. I think it's really important to have that context before we start out. Um, in Canada, we call it assisted death, not euthanasia or assisted suicide. Can you talk about that a bit in terms of the history? Yeah, depending on what you read, uh, who wrote it, who published it, and maybe what year it was written, you might come across a lot of confusing terminology. Assisted suicide or, or even physician-assisted suicide are terms that are still often used in the United States and are meant to signify the situation when, when lethal medications are prescribed by a healthcare practitioner, but the person self-administers the medication. It's usually a drink, a mixture of foul-tasting barbiturates, to be precise, and the person holds it and drinks it themselves. So the medication is provided by the healthcare practitioner, but it's taken by the patient. The term euthanasia, it originates from the Greek eu, meaning good or well, and thanos, meaning death. And the modern understanding and use of the term euthanasia is defined as the administration of a lethal medication by a healthcare professional at the explicit request of a competent adult with the goal of relieving further pain and suffering. The key difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia then is in who administers the medication, the patient or the healthcare professional. Now, although euthanasia is still the preferred term in Europe, Canada consciously chose instead to use the term medical assistance in dying or made in part to avoid any negative connotation. Outdated phrasing such as someone committed suicide implies maybe that a crime of some sort was involved. And the word euthanasia, of course, was purposely and inaccurately used by those in the eugenics movement around the turn of the 20th century to describe the killing of unwanted or what they called undesirable persons as part of the pursuit of genetic purity. As many people will know, it was then adopted by the Nazis during World War II and used euphemistically for their killing campaign. So detractors of assisted dying will sometimes default to this terminology in order to evoke that repugnant history. Not only does the use of made avoid any association with kind of past atrocities, it's also designed to be an umbrella term, at least in Canada. So that includes both options of self-administered assisted dying and clinician-administered assisted dying. And Canada is one of only four jurisdictions in the world where both of these options are legally available. So the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg being the other three. And everywhere else that you might hear about assisted dying, like commonly in Switzerland or Australia and some United States, only the self-administered form of care is allowed. Thanks. I think those are really important distinctions. Again, you know, to start us off with, with that definition and those distinctions in that larger international context, I think gives listeners um, a, a really good grounding. And I believe you were reading from your book there. Um, and yes. so I, I would like to share an excerpt from your book as well, Stephanie, as a segue to talk about it a little bit more directly. For me Great. as a reader, this paragraph was pivotal in terms of understanding more about you. So here we go. Both maternity care and maid were intense, intimate, emotional experiences that called upon family dynamics and required me to respect personal choices both challenged me to be at once fully present and then fairly quickly to graciously withdraw. Not unlike my role in maternity care, my job in MAID is to stay focused on what patients need, listen for their intentions, understand their goals, and help steer them and their loved ones through what I hope can be a slightly more empowered transformation from partner to caregiver, from person to patient, from life to death. My role also goes through transition during these events, as I place the baby on mom's chest or as I pronounce out loud that a loved one has finally died. 
and I'm immediately aware that my role has shifted from a helpful guide to a respectful witness. I really love that paragraph. Um, Stephanie, can you talk a bit about how and why you shifted from maternity to maid? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I love that paragraph too. Thanks for finding it. Um, I've, I've always been interested in the intersection between medicine, ethics, and law. And uh, throughout most of my career, that was you know, fulfilled through my work in women's health and reproductive rights. But I was always interested in end-of-life issues as well. In fact, when I was in medical school, I was taking a course in biomedical ethics. Uh, and at the same time, the story of Sue Rodriguez's fight to change assisted dying laws in this country was unfolding in the, in the national headlines. It was the first time I'd ever really considered what assisted dying was and how I might feel about it. And we talked about it in class. I, of course, chose to pursue a career in maternity care. And I, and I have to tell you, I absolutely adored it. I mean, what can be better than a job where you deliver babies? But, uh, but I had to admit that after a couple decades doing that, you know, the physical demands of a 24-hour in-hospital call shift, delivering babies and assessing emergencies, along with the, the increasing time it was taking to recover afterwards from those shifts, you know, kept me routinely away from my family. It was becoming more challenging as I aged. I knew my children would be soon finishing school, probably leaving our nest. And I wanted to be around more before they did that. At the same time, like most Canadians, I was following the newer challenge to the, to the blanket prohibition of assisted dying in Canada that used to exist, and that was the Carter case. And when I saw that our laws would soon be changing, I wondered who would step forward to do that, that important but unfamiliar work. And one common thread that I like to believe I've upheld through my career was really taught to me during my training, and that's the importance of what we like to call patient-centered care, by putting the patient and their needs and their values and their traditions and their community of loved ones at the center of care is so very important. You know, some treatment choices may not be for everyone, but if the patient is well-informed and given an opportunity to ask questions and weigh the options, if they opt for care or don't opt for care, I believe the healthcare system needs to respect that. And I felt that choosing an assisted death was one more example of when patient autonomy needed to be considered and respected in our healthcare system. So it's really a perfect storm of factors that all came together for me in 2016. I was getting a little bit older, wanted a little more control of my time, strong desire to promote patient autonomy within the system. And, uh, and as I learned more about assisted dying, it turns out that the skills I once honed providing maternity care were really directly transferable to the other end of life. So I, I made that switch. And for me, I think, you know, as a patient advocate and just as a person, I think it really resonates in the context of bringing death into life and that relationship mm. and seeing that full circle nature of things. Yeah, um, life is a, is a spectrum from birth to death and all the crazy roller coasters in between. And it's sure. really the role of the physician to be there for all of that. For sure. And that, that patient-centered concept is being so critical. And I think it's one thing that that made providers really bring to the forefront um, in terms of demonstrating the value of that. Mm, yeah. yeah, I work with an incredible community of clinicians across the country, I would agree. Yeah, and I've been so fortunate to meet many of them as well. Um, can you tell us why you decided to write this book? Sure. Well, it would be correct to say that I want, I, I, I want to contribute to the growing and shifting conversations around death and dying in our society, in our modern society. And, and I believe the perspective of a clinician who provides medical assistance in dying is, is unique and valuable in that discussion. You know, North Americans aren't very good at that conversation. And I think anything I can do to 
to facilitate that is, is a positive thing. I think that recognizing the death and dying, like I said, are, are part of every single life. And I think that we need to maybe uh, discuss it and honor it as such. And whether you agree with assisted dying or not, I think if my book can encourage people to consider what brings meaning to their lives, what brings joy to their lives, uh, and maybe even have those discussions with their loved ones who will then be better prepared uh, in cases of emergencies, I, I think that would be helpful. So I hope my book can do that. But the, the honest truth, Yana, is that as I began my work in assisted dying, I kept finding myself in the most extraordinary of circumstances. I was meeting incredible people who were asking things of me I had never imagined being asked for uh, to help them fulfill their final wishes uh, in a way that I had never been prepared or trained for. Uh, it, was, it was really unexpected and new. And when people asked me what I do or what it was like to do this work, I found there was so much misinformation out there about assisted dying. I really wanted to share my experiences in order to, to help demystify the process and the reality of what it was, and to explain and explore what assisted dying looks like from the front lines, really. Well, and you definitely did that. I, I really enjoyed your book. Um, it's you know a testament Thanks. to that. It's it's filled with flags. I I put a lot of sticky notes in there as I was going through. Um, you mentioned <laughs> there's a lot of, of misinformation out there. Can you tell us some common misperceptions about MAID? Yeah, there there are many to be honest, but there's there's always two that come to mind immediately. Um, the first is that someone, you know, some people think that you can just call up some office and ask for an assisted death and then have one the next day. It just simply doesn't work like that. There is a rigorous system in place with a number of eligibility criteria that must be met. Things like, you know, the patient needs to make a voluntary request, you know, with no sense of coercion from anywhere else. You know, they have to be capable of making their own healthcare decisions and not so cognitively challenged that they can't speak for themselves. They have to have a serious illness. They need to be in an advanced state of decline. They have to, you know, be, you know, having intolerable suffering. And on top of all of that, there are even other procedural safeguards, we call them, that need to also be, you know, met. So, you know, the request needs to be in writing. It needs to be witnessed. It needs to be two independent clinicians that need to be involved and assess and agree that the patient's eligible. The fact is that there's a very rigorous system in place. It's not a simple phone call. You just ask for it and get it. So I think that's that's one myth that people need to, to, to have clarified. Mm -hmm. The second, I think the second most common misperception is that MAID is somehow um, morbid. Now, you know, to me, MAID is really about empowerment. Um, it's obviously about death and dying, and it can be can be sad and even truly tragic at times. I mean, someone's life is coming to an end, right? So it's it's there's always a sadness about that. But in my experience, assisted dying is also very much about life, and and what makes it meaningful to any one person and how they want to live or not live the time they have left. Um, as as I wrote in my book, I'm going to quote myself. I wrote the fear of an unknown ending is replaced by a semblance of control. Instead of feeling helpless, people feel empowered, something their illness may have denied them for months or even years. For many, it can be a way out of intolerable suffering at the very end of life. For others, it's a way to reduce some of their fears and fully reclaim the time they have left to live their final days with a startling amount of purpose. And actually, Yana, that's what I have found. People, once they're told that they're eligible, they actually stop thinking about death and dying and they really start focusing on the time they have left and living it and how they want to live it. 
And for me, I think that's an important aspect to me that maybe some people don't understand. Definitely. Now, actually, um, I think I'd like to take this opportunity to turn the table a little bit because I have the, uh, the pleasure of being here with you today. Mm-hmm. Well, I like to think that my perspective as a provider of MAID is unique. I actually think that yours is too. I mean, it's, you're someone with lived experience. So I'd, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Sure. So first of all, what was it like for you and for Chris making that first call to request an assisted death? That's a really interesting question. Um, And, you know, everyone's story is different. And I think that's really important um, to emphasize. I want to say, you know, our story was a little bit different. But I think every story is a a little bit different, um, particularly in the context of people's maids experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, you know, speaking up about this means that if someone else had a similar experience and, and, is feeling um, conflicted about it, that, um, you know, it sheds a little light and and offers a little support. And so really, when I think about making that first call, um, it it really goes back to sitting on the gurney when when Chris was um, waiting to be diagnosed with with colon cancer. So we didn't even know that's what he had yet. We knew there was some abnormalities in his peritoneum and that they were going to explore upwards and, and downwards and And uh, so we started to have a conversation that was really, I think, that conversation we want people to have before they're actually in that situation. So in some ways, we did have that conversation a little bit in advance. We didn't know um, that he had a a terminal diagnosis. Um, And so we talked about, you know, he talked about openly, you know, he he was quite comfortable in that moment, even though we just had a, you know, a very temporary shield around, around the gurney that we were sitting on in that hallway. And he talked about you know, if this is serious, am I going to treat this? Am I, am I going to go through chemotherapy? And that might've been one of the first times that he started to, to, you know, ponder if he was going to use um, cannabis therapy as well, the Rick Simpson protocol. And it wouldn't surprise me if he'd brought it up that early as well. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting to think about, we were still, we were just really months after the, um, the law came into place and November of 2016 was where we were at, but we both had that on our minds and he brought it up. And, and so we talked about it. And, you know, I think that really set a tone because it, it wasn't going through a treatment process and then, quote unquote, well, I want to use the phrase giving up, which a lot of people would use. Stopping the treatment process is the better term. Um, and and then bringing that conversation up. It was with us from the very beginning. So I think mm-hmm. that that shifted things a lot. Um, When I think back over time, when Chris decided to stop treating, um, the oncologist actually gave him the forms. And Chris was quite possessive of that experience because he wanted to make sure that nothing came into play that prevented him from having that right. So I really Mm -hmm. stepped back and and let him engage with that. Um, So he contacted the provincial maid office, you know, for people who are listening, that's something obviously because healthcare is provincial, you're going to do on a province by province basis. And there's always really good information on the related websites. If you just Google your province and maid, it'll come up immediately, but, but he contacted them and, um, and got that process going really. So for me, I think it was just a matter of ensuring that particularly this as caregiver, that he had that space to do that um, and run the process as felt right for him. 
Yeah, that's it's uh, it's encouraging to hear that uh, that physicians and Chris's physician were was able to bring it up and, and to actually you know provide him with the forms that he needed. That's not always the case, and as you mentioned, every province has their own. Uh, website at this point for for patients and their loved ones who are looking for information access to to start in the process if that's what they want obviously uh, a big step to take but really great to hear that some uh, clinicians are are uh, are on board with uh, with offering that information proactively to patients who deserve and and need that information yeah because it is a bit controversial right in terms of you know the idea that you might be influencing or suggesting i think our oncologist had a pretty clear sense of chris and what he wanted out of his treatment experience. So to me, it wasn't mm-hmm. controversial and it wouldn't have been anyways, because if, you know, I, I've spoken with people who, who are terminally ill and didn't even know that MAID was an option. So, um, you know, yeah. I think there should be a variety of sources by which people can acquire that information. Yeah. Now, um, uh, Yana, when I tell people that they're eligible for MAID, I've certainly seen a, a fair bit of relief uh, expressed. Uh, people often express gratitude for the possibility, and whether they go on to receive MAID or not, I think that interaction uh, has, you know, where I've told them that they're eligible, I think that interaction has mostly been therapeutic in and of itself, uh, but, it, you know, maybe not for everyone, and I wonder how it's, it's, uh, how it's experienced by the loved ones, you know, how did you and Chris feel after you were told that he was actually eligible for assisted dying? Well, it's interesting because I think that kind of blends in from the question that that, that we just discussed um, mm-hmm. in terms of, of having integrated it early into our conversation, but also about Chris really being anxious that he would have that right and that, you know, which really does blend into that right of an assisted death in the first place, that empowerment that you talked about, right? Um, mm-hmm. That um, That was so critical to him to have that sense of control over what was going on. Um, so when I think about it, I think I, I really felt quite distant and just kind of observing from afar and, and being a bit neutral, um, which is, I think, interesting in terms of, um, you know, I think later on, we're going to talk a little bit about grief, but I think to, to touch on that too, um, I don't think I was really that conscious of, um, that separation of my feelings from his because I was a caregiver to him. Right. So mm-hmm. I think there, there was a part of me that was really shut off and that then became more complicated to address after he died. And I think that's something that's really important that, that I would raise for, for anyone who might be listening, you know, taking that time with your own feelings and realizing um, the separation. I mean, it is, it's an anticipatory grief process because right there, it's almost like death has started. If you know that someone is terminal and then you add on that layer of knowing that they've been approved for an assisted death and you're beginning to look at when you, you know, when your loved one might actually pick a date, it gives you a quote unquote opportunity as their loved one to begin to assess your own feelings. And I think there are many of us, the loved ones of someone who has chosen an assisted death who maybe didn't, um, delve into that as much as we perhaps needed. Um, well, so, you know, I think it's an important thing to raise. Well, what was it like then counting down the days until the scheduled event itself, once you knew it was planned? That's a, um, a powerful question for our situation. And um, I've written some notes to myself and the phrase I, phrase I see in front of me is we die how we live. And I I talked about the fact that Chris and I didn't really know each other for that long, less than three years. 
Um, and when we met that he was really in the process of changing his life. But in general, as much as Chris was a, a, a force of a human being and a very loving person, he'd, often, he'd also had a significant amount of discontent in his life. And I, I think that that really resurfaced as we were counting down the clock and, and even you know, during, during portions of his treatment as well. So it was a very difficult time. We were not that stereotypical, you know, peaceful death and, and, and uh, some of the things you've already spoken about in our conversation today in terms of, you know, feeling a sense of relief and being able to set certain things aside and, and, and to enjoy those last bits of life that you had. Um, Chris, Chris was, was quite low and could be quite difficult. We had a fabulous palliative care team. Um, who were extremely supportive. Um, and I think that made a big difference. Um, and so he, he spent a fair bit of time, you know, just, just to himself. And, and, and I gave him that space. And that did make it difficult for the people that were around him. Um, myself, obviously, in particular, because I had that, that relationship of, of taking care of him, which he would often push away. Um, so... Yeah, it, it was not a long period of time, but in some ways it feel, felt like a, a never-ending period of time because the surrealness of knowing that date is coming up, yet also knowing um, there's this person who's basically ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think the point can't be said enough that everyone's death, just like everyone's birth and everyone's life, is unique. And, and how we experience these moments whether they're natural deaths or made deaths, uh, they're going to be unique for every situation, every couple, every person, every family. I think um, made does offer, as you mentioned, um, the opportunity for some sense of closure. It may not be that happy, relieved, grateful couple of days, which I do see a lot of. It may just be an opportunity to to bring up some of those old issues, those older dynamics, uh, those those emotional wounds, and and sometimes patients can find closure, and sometimes they can't. But there is there is an opportunity there uh, to explore all that. So definitely, yeah. and you know, it's it's no disrespect to Chris, obviously. I think you know, um, or, or to his his other family members. Um, you know, it's just the, the simple truth of where someone is at, and um, you know, even looking back, it, thinking about the reality of if he'd had more space to feel comfortable talking about that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think he took that space or if he did take it, sometimes it would be quite aggressively because he probably feel, felt that he didn't have the right, you know, um, and then maybe it would have opened up the opportunity for some more complex conversations with his family members about how we were all feeling and beginning to delineate yeah. a little bit more, right? So that you have those, those safe spaces to each of ourselves to be able to have those conversations. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. So you've touched on this a little bit in your answers, but can, can you tell me, do you, do you think that grief is different after a made death than, uh, than any other type of death? Um, 
I think the concepts of, of grief are all still there. Like we talk about different types, like complicated or anticipatory, um, disenfranchised is a word that often comes up and made um, grief. And I can talk a little bit about that more specifically in a minute, but um, I think all of those concepts are true in death regardless, right? I mean, you can have a complicated sense of grief as I would describe mine and that um, the man that I loved um, didn't die peacefully, didn't die happily. And there, there were a lot of things that weren't even, I mean, we didn't really have a goodbye. He, he um, the morning of his assisted death, he'd had some um, relatives of his first wife who really challenged his decision and were trying to convince him not to make that choice. And other people have that experience as well. It's not, it's not unusual. And so um, you know, when he woke up very early that morning, he, he said to me, do you, do you think I should still do this? And, and I immediately thought of the words that the Pallia team had given him. And I said, well, you know, Chris, you, you can always delay this. You have the choice. This is your choice. And he said, oh, great. Um, you don't, you don't, um, you know, have faith in me either. I'm not going to, not going to do this. You can tell everyone. And I just kind of sat quietly and, and, uh, he said, uh, said to me, um, so what are you doing? And I said, I'm just sitting here loving you. And then the doorbell rang and it was his family members who were, who were going to be with us that day. And shortly after the team came and, and first, before the team arrived, we took him out to A&W for breakfast because that's what he wanted. And, and uh, then the team arrived and we, you know, went through with setting him up and he took time with each of his family members. But uh, something I don't talk about too much is the fact is that even in those last minutes, he and I didn't have a full goodbye. Um, I really gave him his space for his experience, but that left me with something extremely complicated to carry and process afterwards. Lots of, you know, I'm not really a person who believes in regret, but sort of a, hmm, what, how could I have handled that differently? But he, he felt pretty volatile and pretty raw. And so I felt that I needed to live, leave that to him. Um, I think the term anticipatory is, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, the term anticipatory, I think, again, is something that applies in a made death or not. And in the case of a made death, you have a date that you're looking towards. But, um, you know, in, I've, I've read a little bit about this recently, that in some ways that actually anticipatory grief is, I think it was actually just in the last 24 hours, a, a beautiful concept in, in that it gives us um, space to begin that saying goodbye, not just but to the person, but that life that you shared together and um, beginning to separate yourself. So I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Disenfranchised grief is, I think, the one um, that that has particular relevance in relation to made. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned that Chris had family members from his previous marriage who challenged him. And I think because people have um, particular opinions about assisted death, people will sometimes choose, I'm sure you've experienced this with, with many patients, choose to have an assisted death in secret um, mm -hmm. and have family members, um, you know, keep that secret afterwards, which then can further complicate their grief. So yeah. this is another yeah. layer that people really need to deal with. I don't know if you want to talk about that maybe in, in a bit in relation to some of the patients that you've worked with and families. Yeah, we, we always, I mean, I always encourage people to have, you know, respectful and open conversations with anyone who's disagreeing with them. Because I think, again, I, I'd like to explore these issues and have them, you know, find some more satisfying closure before their death, if at all possible. So whenever we sense that there's that kind of... Um, disagreement amongst loved ones or family members we, we try very very hard to uh, to uh, to explore that beforehand to 
you know, for the patient and family's benefit both. Um, it's not always successful, but usually we come to some sort of respectful agreement. Um, of course, in the end, uh, you know, I, you know, I know the law and, and my patients do too. By the time I've spoken with them, they know that I will take my direction from them and only them. And while we do respect the, and want to hear from loved ones, ultimately, you know, they have no standing in this decision. And I, I won't allow them to, to bully my patients or myself um, in those moments. Opponents of, of assisted dying will often talk about their fears of patients being coerced into making this decision. I, I have to tell you, over six years of this work, just about six years, I've rarely, if ever, seen that. I have, however, had a, more than a handful of cases where I am certain that patients have been um, I would say bullied out of their decision to have an assisted death by by caregivers and loved ones who felt it was the wrong decision for them. So, so uh, I think exploring all those issues beforehand would be helpful to to find the right answers. You also mentioned respiratory grief, and and I, I do see that a lot. You know, all of my patients have a set date and time. They know when they're going to die, and it does, in fact, as you say, really allow the family and, and loved ones to to start that work of grief beforehand, which can be quite helpful. Although. The most common reaction after the death that I've seen is that uh, families are still a little bit stunned, despite all the preparation. Um, there's this moment of it's just quite surreal, I find, where they're not, you know, all of a sudden they're on the other side. I mean, it, it, all these complex um, uh, emotions and feelings have been brought up. They're not sure what to do with them all. They're, there's a certain amount of relief that they don't want to admit. There's a certain amount of gratitude for the option. There's a certain amount of guilt for, for allowing it to help. And there's a lot of sadness. And there's, and there's often moments of beauty that have preceded that. So it's a very confusing time, I think, for, for families. And I, you know, I, I don't know that it's, that it's so different than other deaths, but I do suspect that uh, because I've had more experience with this than others, um, I do suspect it is a little bit, um, a little bit unique in this situation. Yeah, well, it's still so relatively new for us, right? You know, in, particularly yeah. in Canada. So I think, as you say, like even in those moments, it's if you've been present for a non-made death, you have that context in your mind, that precedence. And and uh, this plays out very differently. It's very, I would use the word simple and quick. Um, mm -hmm. And and there it is. Um, it's not the same as what, watching a non-made death. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. And I think again, just that, that consciousness of, of being able to have those, those conversations in advance, I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, you've, you've encountered people who've been bullied out of it. And I think like, you know, even in terms of what I've talked about today, in terms of the complicated nature of, of how Chris felt as he was dying. Um, I think, you know, even for what I carried afterwards, I, I would probably do that again because it, this was his choice. This was his experience. And even in having this conversation with you, I'm thinking about the fact that it was his anger. It was his discontentment. Hmm. And so, yes. you know, I gave it space. <laughs> I, I gave it space. Yes, it left me something to deal with afterwards. But, um, but this is solely the decision and the experience of one individual. And none of us can really know what that's like unless we are that person or we are their provider. I think you're in a very unique position in that regard, hence some of the stories you were able to weave in, into your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. I, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, extraordinary, uh, it's extraordinary work. Yeah. yeah. I see we're getting close to our time. Uh, are there other things we should be discussing, Anna? Um, I would leave that to you to highlight because this is really about your book. Is there anything more you want to say about the process of writing it or, or how it's changed you or, or where you see yourself taking it in the future? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the experience of doing the work in general has changed me as much as writing the book. I think writing the book has been an interesting experience, much harder than I expected. And it, it forced me to go back and look at some of the experiences I've had. You know, some of them I tucked away kind of safely and not explored too deeply. And by, by, by writing about them, you know, I had journaled about them before because there was something about them that stuck out that I knew I wanted to just put on paper. But writing the book made me really go back and, and, and think about why, this, why a particular experience stood out in my mind. What was it about it that was so striking to me? And why would that have been? And it was a very self-reflective um, process for me uh, and helped me uh, put to rest, I guess, some of my own personal feelings, some of the relationships in my own life that, I, that have been complicated that I talk about in my book and um, really helped me do some of that, uh, some of that own you know, personal work. So I found it quite helpful, actually, um, to, uh, to contemplate uh, in this larger context. So I, I will never regret doing it. It was, like I said, it was a lot harder than I expected. It took a lot longer to, to get it to fruition, but I'm, I'm ready to get it out there. I think the only other thing I would want to, um, to mention that I, I, I do like to emphasize is that the, you know, I, I work with a tremendous community of, uh, of clinicians and, and, and para-health professionals to do this work. It's very multidisciplinary work. It, it, certainly, it certainly takes a village to provide need properly. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to work with an incredible community. And I, I, I want to always emphasize that the people that do this work um, do it carefully. Do it uh, cautiously. Do it with a tremendous sense of responsibility and privilege to be in the position to be able to offer this care. And no one does it flippantly or uh, in some sort of outrageous activist way. I think there's always a concern that that, um, that that might be happening. And I I just want to emphasize the care and, uh, uh, and just conscientious efforts that everybody I know involved in this work takes to, to make sure we get it right for the for the patient, uh, the system, uh, and um, and for the you know, for me as a whole. I think it's very important to know that. Yeah, I I, I could not agree more and would emphasize that. And I think that's a, a really important note for us to end our conversation upon. I really am um, right. honored to have had this time with you today, Stephanie, and, and participate in this conversation and to have been invited yeah. to, to join you in this well, podcast. <laughs> well, you know, thanks for adding your perspective. I think it's just as important. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Yana Buhlman in conversation with Dr. Stephanie Green. This is Assisted Dying. is available at fine independent booksellers from coast to coast to coast. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.